Welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In with me, Paul Johnson. With me today, we have Dr. Birgitta Raba, who is a reader in economics at the University of Essex, and Dr. Luke Sabieta, who is a research fellow at the IFS. And they're with me to talk about schools and education and the potential long-term effects of COVID on our school children. Both of them are experts in the economics of education. Big Gita is an expert in mental health, particularly in early childhood development. And Luke has focused a lot on funding and performance in schools. And clearly over the last year and a half, we've had an enormous amount of loss of schooling by children right through the age distribution and differential effects on them and potentially long-run consequences for those children who have been affected. Perhaps, Luke, you could start off just by summing up where we've got to in terms of lost education and some of the problems that have been associated with that. Yes, so we know there have been two periods where children have had to mostly learn from home over the last 18 months. There was a period in spring and summer, um, and after that there was already a a good body of research showing that children had fallen behind in their educational progress. Um, But then we also had the period um, uh, earlier this year where children were also mostly sent home to to engage in, in online learning. And after that, we knew know that children were about three to four months behind on average in terms of their normal educational progress as compared with other cohorts. But as one would expect, it's been a very unequal picture um, and to some extent predictable. We know that children from disadvantaged backgrounds have fallen behind by more. And we've also seen children falling behind more in maths um, than they have fallen behind in English, which um, interesting links to all the other literature which shows that extra time in school is more valuable for maths and that when children have been disrupted in their education for like sort of snow days in America, um, it's always been maths that have suffered. And obviously, as an economist, I get very concerned when children have fallen behind in their maths. <laughs> How much does any of that really matter? I mean, if you're a seven or eight-year-old and you've fallen you know, your whole cohort has fallen three or four months behind. You've got years to make it up. And even if you, you know, you you can't do quite as much maths as you might otherwise would have done at age 16, is that really going to matter to you or to the rest of us? Well, to some extent, that's an open question, particularly as the effects of the pandemic have been, well, have been unique as compared with previous crises and disruptions. Um, But we also know that learning is fundamentally foundational and it it builds on what's happened at the previous stage. If you haven't haven't managed to grasp all the skills that you caught up in the the last year, um, are you going to be able to engage with the next level of learning? Um, And that might apply to primary schools, but it probably does apply also in secondary schools. And this is one of my sort of sources of concern about inequalities in secondary schools is that some pupils might have got really, really stuck on particular topics and then just not progressed at all during lockdowns. And in some cases, teachers would have been able to help them with that, but in other cases, not. Um, so the concern is that children will end up leaving school with lower levels of skills and knowledge in particular areas. Um, and whilst we've been sort of inflating grades a bit to help pupils um, uh, sort of move on to the next day of education, knowing stuff is valuable to being productive later on in life. And if you're less productive, you're likely to earn less as an adult. And you've sort of attempted to put some kind of numbers on on this and suggested that um, even a little bit of learning loss 
could add up to an awful lot of earnings lost across the whole cohort. Exactly. And so we've done some sort of, it's fair to say, back of the envelope calculations in terms of what the long run effects are going to be. So if you assume a year of schooling is worth about 8% in your lifetime and you earn about a million pounds over your lifetime and should have lost maybe something like half a year of schooling, that's about £40,000 over your lifetime. But the issue with this is that it, even if it's a really, really small learning loss, these things matter for lifetime earnings. If you've only lost about 1% of the learning, it's still going to be something close to five, ten thousand pounds over your lifetime. So it, what we see from this is that education really, really matters for what happens in the future. So losing a little bit might seem like it, or it can kind of catch up, but if you end up with education with a little bit less skills those are the sorts of things we've worked generations to try and help people get move on to the next stage so going back a little bit is kind of removing a lot of progress. Birgitta you've been looking at this from a slightly different perspective and in particular uh, the impact on children's mental health from Covid and indeed how that relates to issues that existed before could you just tell us a little bit about your concerns there? Yeah, so I think one thing that the pandemic has highlighted is that schools are not only a place where children go to do their academic learning, but it is so much more for the children. So it's a place to socialise, it's a place to be physically active, to eat healthily and to be away potentially from an unfavourable home life uh, for play-based learning and all of that. And so um, one big concern of um, the school closures have has been their impact on mental health because children do learn in school to recognize and manage their feelings, resolve their conflicts and so on. What we've done in terms of research is just compare um, the six-week difference in school access for children in the summer of 2020, where the government had prioritized some children to return to school where others were not prioritized. And we've seen that even from this six-week difference between those different groups, we have quite a substantial impacts on their mental health as measured by the um, strength and different difficulty questionnaire. So the children that were not prioritized had one major difficulty very often as opposed to not having it at all without the school closures or two difficulties some of the time. Now, this is a closure of just six weeks that we have been um, able to study. If you extrapolate this, we don't know whether this is cumulative over time or it may be an exponential decline in mental health for over longer periods. So this is quite concerning. Another concern is that um, the initial effect that I was talking about was measured more or less contemporaneously, but we were also able to look three months later after the summer holidays, when everyone everyone had been back at school for a whole month. And at that point, we still find the same differences between the children that did and didn't have access the previous summer. So this indicates that just going back to school and being back in the mix of things, back to socializing and everything that school has to offer, does not automatically resolve these problems. They tend to persist. So this is the big concern, that this will not go away on its own from the short time period that we were um, able to to study. And uh, the government has put in place various support mechanisms, which mo mostly amount to teaching um, schools about all the already available services, uh, but it's not that extra services as such have been put in place. 
And we know that mental health is, is related to other outcomes. It's related to the ability for co cognitive de development and learning. It's also associated to physical and social health. So it's a, it's a very important area to tackle also in terms of the learning loss. So that's really quite concerning that uh, it's not only, I think what you're saying is not only does um, spending some time out of school have a negative effect on mental health at that moment, but you've got pretty strong evidence that that problem continues over time. Can, can, can you give us any sense of sort of the scale of this? When our children don't have the highest well-being in the world anyway, to put it mildly, as I understand from international comparisons, and this is putting additional strains on their mental health and well-being. I, mean, I don't know whether you can give us any sense of the numbers who are you know, really struggling or how bad the problem is. What we found is that the increase of the mental health difficulties as a result of the school closures um, in the short term were 27% of the pre-pandemic average, so up by a third um, on what they were. And as I said, newly having one additional problem very often. So this could be a conduct problem, high, hyperactivity problem, and things like those. The substantial uh, and ongoing problem. And uh, I mean, Luke, one of the things that you, you've looked at, of course, is that a lot of the problems facing schools post-COVID are, to some extent, a continuation of problems they were facing in in any case. This is a sector which has um, still not recovered its funding per pupil from where it was um, back in 2010. And of course, the government's own advisor on the uh, recovery from COVID, Sir Kevin Collins, suggested the need for, I think it was something like 15 billion of additional funding, of which the Treasury coughed up maybe one or two. Uh, can you give us a sense of the scale of funding problems that are being faced here relative to the scale of need. Exactly. So you're right to say this links uh, very much with the pre-pandemic issues that schools are facing. So up until just before the, the pandemic struck, struck um, school resources had fallen by about 9% in terms of spending per pupil over the last decade. That's a big drop in spending per pupil. And even with the additional money the government has since put in, um, we're still not really back to where we were in 2010, even in 2022. So no real terms growth in spending for people over a 12, 13 year period is pretty much unprecedented in terms of uh, modern history of public spending. So schools already faced a big squeeze. And now on top of that, they've now got to try and help pupils catch up with lost learning and all the, all the other problems they face in their lives. And Kevin Collins recommended a, a, a large amount of uh, funding and the government only Cost of, as you said, about a billion of that. But I think what's really interesting about what we've learned about the role of schools um, and in terms of how we can best help people to catch up is the, is, the, is the wide variety of roles they play in terms of public services. They used to be a place where children went and learned their times tables and came home, and that's really not the case anymore. They play, what we saw during the pandemic, they play a role in terms of the provision of health services, they play a role in so in social welfare in terms of providing free school meals they also play an incredibly important safeguarding role um, in terms of identifying vulnerable pupils who are at risk of harm and we lost some of those vital services during lockdown and what was really sort of encouraging from the proposals that kevin collins had been making was that we needed needed a, a very much a uh, a plan that was 
all encompassing that encompassed encompassed those variety of roles. So it helped pupils um, with, with their mental health and the problems they were facing if those problems were severe and persisting. It looked at trying to help younger pupils who missed out on social interaction in terms of helping pupils in the early years and seeing the role that they play it they play as well in terms of helping pupils. So it's important to see the level, but also the variety of what's needed. And in some cases, that can be a bit of extra tutoring in maths, maths and English. In other cases, it's going to be helping people just re-engage with school, help them address some of the mental health and anxiety problems that they've experienced over the last 18 months so they can be in a place. To live. But it's also going to be cases about trying to find out what's happened to vulnerable pupils who have kind of gone off the radar over the last 18 months. So it's about the level, but it's also about the variety of what's needed. It's not, of course, just uh, an issue of a problem on the average, um, although all pupils, of course, experienced COVID and the um, and, and, and the shutdowns of schools. There's also a big issue, isn't there, about the inequality uh, of experience. And even if you don't believe that it matters, maybe that everyone is a couple of months further behind than they otherwise would have been, uh, my sense is that you really probably should believe that it matters if what this has resulted in is an increase in inequalities and uh, I think you've got evidence that that it has had that effect. Exactly so um, the average hides a great deal of variation and so there will be some pupils and some children who have been largely unaffected by the pandemic because they had a good quality of education they managed to get on with stuff um, and they just continue as normal. On the other end there's been pupils who've missed out on huge amounts of educational progress because they weren't able to do much during lockdown because of their home situation or because that we weren't able to get that much from their school or because they developed problems about just engaging with school and anxiety levels about how to do learning properly. Um, and on average, the problem is it's about maybe about three to four months of educational progress, but there'll be some pupils who are sort of half a year, a year behind in educational learning. And there'll be some people who are just, just not engaged with school who are just persistently absent as well. And if it's like one, two percent of pupils that have this sort of severe problem about being persistently absent and then go on to post-16, they're going to become pupils who we think of as neat, those who are not in education, um, employment or training. And as I'm sure you remember, Paul, from your days in Farm for Education, that problem can be enormously expensive throughout public services and, and for individuals themselves. And we don't have a great series of interventions to try and help pupils who are who end up in that situation. It's just an incredibly encompassing state that's hard to get out of. And if the result of the pandemic is it's maybe one, two percent of pupils who are persistently absent and then who, who are just outside the employment education system, that could be incredibly expensive, even though it's a small number of people. I mean, that's, uh, as you say, very worrying. And I mean, there are, you know, there are all sorts of um, issues in inequality here. There might be some affected in that very dramatic way, as you say. Uh, but equally, we know that it's children from less well-off backgrounds who have had more educational disruption on the whole, and um, therefore just that gap in GCSEs between the better off and the less well-off may uh, increase after very, very gradual improvement over a period of time. Exactly. And but we, we can't learn that much from GCSE results as, as they are at the moment, given the way that, that they've been assessed. There's a big gap between private and state school pupils in terms of their GCSE um, results. We, we suspect that's driven more by incentives and, and, and teacher judgments rather than any fundamental difference. 
but we're not going to learn that much until people start sitting normal exams again. And we hope they'll be as normal as possible next summer. But given the disruption they've experienced in year 10 and year 12, there's going to be problems then as well. So it's going to be a, quite a long time before we actually work out what's going on. And, and Big Issa, in, in, in your work, you've also looked at how mental health and other effects that you've been looking at have been distributed across the pupil population. And what, what does that look like? So what we've done is we've looked at the learning inputs, and this is by parents, by the children themselves, and by schools, and how they all interact with each other. And there were some interesting findings from that. So one interesting finding was that if you look at English state schools, where we have a lot of observable characteristics, and you try to predict how many lessons these schools offered, um, you, you might think it's the schools with the poorer intakes or the schools with the um, low offset grades that do not offer uh, that did not offer lessons in lockdown. But it's actually very, very hard to predict using observable school characteristics how much they they did engage with the learning. So there seems to be something unexplained here. And similarly, if you look at parents and children, the old socioeconomic status um, dividing lines that you might expect with higher educated parents helping less or the high, um, more, excuse me, or the high income parents helping more, that is also not what we find. We find that um, circumstances were very varied and it might be perhaps that a highly educated parent is sitting at home doing online work, not being able to help as much as a as a low-income um, person who has been furloughed and has more time to help their children. So what we expect, and we will only know until um, the testing is back in place, is that um, there will be different dividing lines between children, perhaps um, very much um, by where they live because of differing COVID infection rates and all this, the extra school closures that children experience. But also um, we, we did find a gender divide in learning with boys being much less able to do um, learning at home than girls. And it might be that the prior attainment um, of children is, is quite important. This is what other countries find, that high attaining pupils found it easier um, to, to work at home than the lower attaining ones. So I think we have to look a little bit beyond the old socioeconomic status divide and and we expect that there will be different inequalities. And what, what, what do we know about impacts on mental health, uh, for example? Um, I mean, is, are there, were they differential between boys and girls? Um, in the mental health, it was, it was hard for us using the available data to distinguish much by background, but we found that some indication that uh, this was worse for boys than girls. Okay, so and and the and the learning experience worse for boys than girls as well. Yeah, with boys being much less able to uh, work on their own at home, or or just not willing, or whatever uh, how you want to see it, but parents were trying to compensate for this um, by helping their children more, and this is what we found in general that in the first uh, lockdown in the in the um, spring of twenty twenty. The schools were very quite slow, or some schools were slow at providing lessons and materials to the parents. And um, interestingly, the parents then went out and sought out free resources on the internet. And again, we did not find um, a lot of divide um, in who those parents were that went out and found learning materials. 
Then by the second national um, school period of school closures, there was a directive for schools to provide online lessons. And so they did. They ramped up, up their effort and then parents stopped using the free internet resources. So we find that parents are, on the whole, have been very active, actually. And this is across, you know, the different layers of society. So that's right. So when schools weren't providing, um, parents were stepping in as best they could and, 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 and right across the across distribution. The that's exactly right. Yeah, that's what we find. Um, you've also, I mean, you, you've talked a bit about uh, mental health, but I think you've also looked at things like physical activity and obesity and those sorts of issues, which have obviously been something we've been concerned about for a long time, but, uh, but again, became worse through the pandemic and that may have continued. Yeah, that's right. So childhood obesity obviously is a major, major problem in the UK with children who leave primary school at the age of 10 or 11, already 20, 21% of them have been obese pre-pandemic. And in the lockdown, the the public health measures to combat the pandemic were exactly um, increasing the risk factors for childhood obesity. So children were spending obviously more time at home, sitting in front of their computers. Clubs were closed, parks were closed, screen time was up, so physical activity declined. And there is there are studies showing that on a normal lockdown day, about a third of children didn't leave the house although they were always you know, entitled to leave for an hour's exercise, but they often did not. So that's the physical exercise side of it. And then in terms of the eating, we've heard a lot about the, the hunger problem with Marcus Rashford um, you know, highlighting the issues for children in receipt of free school meals, their situation during the holiday and so on. But I guess um, the focus should not only be on undernutrition, it should also be on malnutrition where children tend to not eat very well at home. And this is actually from previous research that we conducted, is a problem not only in the poorest families, but this goes right up um, different families who don't have the time or the information to provide healthy meals uh, from home. And this is in comparison to the school meals that children receive in school, where school uh, quite strict school food standards apply. The measurement of of height and weight of children in school, which is uh, being done in reception year and in year six normally, this has stopped during the pandemic. So we don't know what the outcome is. But previous research has shown that even um, that over the summer holidays, uh, children put on extra weight. And our own research has shown that even in short um, holiday breaks, such as one week half term breaks, children return to school weighing more than they did um, when they when they left. So on average, we know that school is good for children's weight through physical activity and better nutrition. And this is a big concern um, in a situation where obesity levels are already so high. And we don't know what the outcome is. Um, School measurements of height and weight have have now resumed, but we will have to wait to see um, how big the the scale of this problem is. But um, I think we can expect it to be high with few policies being shown to actually address childhood obesity. So I think we have to really um, emphasize, um, you know, the role of physical activity in school and healthy eating in school. So um, clear evidence of a less good diet and um, less exercise, but we're still waiting to see what the actual expected impact of that is on 
uh, their actual physical health and, uh, and obesity. So we're facing an extraordinary array of difficulties here. I mean, we've got um, a school system which was struggling with um, reduced resources over a long period, a loss of learning, uh, probably unequal loss of learning, problems with mental health and obesity uh, and so on. I mean, Luke, how well set are schools for dealing with all of this? I mean, it sounds like quite a quite a challenge, to put it mildly. Well, it, it, exactly. And I, I think um, all of this goes to show the huge role schools play in children's life and the huge role they play as part of the state. Um, we know that health has been growing as a share of public service spending, but so has education spending. It's kind of a larger part of public spending these days and more things happen in schools. Um, so they get to see it talked about that we don't even know about national child weight and height measurements because that's something that happens in schools we don't really know about children's skill levels in the GCSE because that's normally something that happens in schools and we can't collect that data so they collect so much data and so many measurements and assessments about what's happening to society that we don't have a good picture of what's going on because we've lost those things during the pandemic. Schools are probably quite well placed to know the problems they're facing. So I'm, I'm sure all the head teachers know the issues about inequality within, within their own school. They know the, the extent of safeguarding problems that they're concerned about because they've grown used to this wider role they play in the state. And so they know, they kind of know what they need to do. But the issue that they're, they're going to face is, is always something about resources and particularly staffing. Running a school, it's about 85% of the costs are staff, about half the cost are teachers, and about a third are other staff. So the extent to which they can manage these problems and try and address them will be largely determined by the extent to which they can get good staff. And that's partly going to be about getting good teachers to, to ensure that, that, that they can help with lost learning. But it's also about other staff who have expertise and good training in dealing with mental health and pastoral support so that they can address these other roles that schools have been playing as well. And of course, the government's announced a, a pay freeze for teachers and other public sector workers, which presumably isn't going to help in um, particularly after a period during which teacher pay has fallen reasonably significantly um, over the last decade. I mean, is this going to create problems in recruiting good staff? To some extent, the pay freeze during the pandemic is sort of understandable given the sort of falls for other workers as well. But long term, as you say, we, we, we know that uh, teacher pay had fallen by a large amount in real terms over the last 10 years. That's partly freezes under the coalition government, but then also pay not keeping pace with average earnings over the last five years as well. The government has committed to £30,000 starting salaries for teachers, but that's only going to be in place by about 2023, 2024, maybe. And so if they're going to do that, they're going to have to deliver it in a big, huge increase in teacher pay over the next year or two. And whether they've got the budgets to do that will be determined largely by the spending review. Um, but what's also interesting about teacher pay is that uh, gaps are kind of opening up across the UK, um, particularly between Scotland and Wales and England. Teacher pay levels were always quite similar across the UK. It, it was a devolved matter, but it's kind of been similar for the last 10 years. From 2019, the Scottish government implemented an 8% rise of teachers and a backdated rise of 3% um, and, have, and been putting further increases in place, which means that uh, teacher pay in Scotland is, is maybe about 10% higher than it is in England. Um, and during the pandemic, 
Wales haven't implemented the same pay freeze as England, which means that teacher pay has been increasing in Wales relative to England. So we're now seeing these differentials open up across nations. I'm sure uh, teachers are perfectly capable of moving with their feet if they don't think that the pay is, uh, is good enough where they live. And it's interesting what you say about this uh, this 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 move to a thirty thousand pound starting salary. I mean, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the big problem in terms of teacher pay and recruitment is 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 not actually so much at that most junior level. It's the fact that if you're a classroom teacher with very substantial experience, you're still not earning a great deal, and some of those people have seen the biggest cuts in their real earnings over the last decade or so. No, exactly. So um, uh, over the last few years, we've been putting more money in at the bottom end of the salary scale in an effort to attract people into the profession and keep early career teachers. And there's good reason for that in the sense that the first few years is when teachers are most likely to leave the profession. So uh, about 30, 40% of teachers have, uh, have left up five years after starting teaching. So trying to keep more of those with higher salaries earlier in their lives is, 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 what's been done and, and, and there, there's good evidence for providing higher salaries early, earlier in careers to try and keep people and entice people into depression and then they're stuck being a teacher for five to ten years because they've now accumulated skills that are very valuable for being a teacher and they've got used to teaching but as you say it's the salaries further up the scale that have probably seen the biggest cuts so the pay of more experienced teachers is, is still going to be around eight percent lower than, than, than it was a, a, over a decade ago so that's a, kind of a big cut in pay the, the other issue we do on teacher remuneration that's kind of interesting and is always left alone is what happens with the value of teachers' pensions as well, because that's a great deal of, of teachers' remuneration is deferred pay that they'll only receive once they retire. And I'm not quite sure all teachers are aware just how valuable teachers' pensions are and how big the sort of effective contributions that are being made, um, but they only then receive 20, 30 years later as well. Uh, Big Eater, what what do we know about the um, capacity of the school and indeed childcare workforce um, to deal with the sorts of issues you've been focusing on around mental health and activity and obesity and those sorts of things? I mean, that's um, do do we have the skills within schools to um, really help with those? I think there's a great deal of training going on right now, and we have a reform to the curriculum where well-being has been. put into the curriculum as part of the PSHE lessons, I think how is what you call them. And there is a certain amount of, of funding uh, that has gone into it. And teachers are also, I think, required by offset to look at the, the well-being aspects of, of all the subjects that are being taught. So not just teaching it as a separate subject, but also looking at aspects such as dealing with feelings, managing conflicts and things like those um, within all the subjects that they teach. The extent to which they are really able to do this um, is hard to tell from the outside. But I think there is an emphasis now um, on extracurricular activities, putting those back into place now that, you know, face-to-face and team sports are possible again. And this can be seen across schools. As Luke rightly said, head teachers know uh, the needs and so does the early childcare sector. Though the early childcare sector, I think that has taken a big hit in the pandemic. And this goes right through to the workforce and the, the finances of early year settings. So this is another concern that might lead to, to shortages in places. 
for parents. So with the next generation coming up or the next cohorts coming up being affected by that. Yeah, and there's, um, I mean, that's uh, probably the topic for another um, broadcast, but the issues faced by the early years sector have been very, you know, again, substantially exacerbated by what we've seen over this pandemic. We should probably begin to draw this to a close. Luke, I've, I, I think one of the things that you've referred to in some of your past work, which I've been particularly struck by, is the potential parallels between uh, coming out of the pandemic uh, with the need for additional investment and focus on education with where we were back in 1918 and again in 1945 coming out of world wars with a need for big additional investment, which in each case didn't really happen. Well, no, exactly. So I, I think this kind of feeds into how we treat education as part of public spending. In that we kind of look for the impact and the value of education now, or maybe maybe if we're really forward looking, we look for the value five years down the line. But when we're thinking about the value of education spending and the value of investment in in education and school resources and everything else that schools do, we need to be thinking 30, 40, 50 years down the line and accounting for the fact that the returns to investment in schooling will happen 30, 40, 50 years down the line. So there was already a review happening in the Treasury about whether to treat education spending as capital spending instead of day-to-day spending. And for most people, that doesn't really matter, but it certainly matters for Treasury in terms of thinking about how to allocate money um, and where things sit in in the the fiscal framework. Um, So perhaps if if we ended up treating education spending more like investment spending, which is what we often call it in terms of investing in education, and we know that these things and the benefits received 30, 40 years down the line, we might see a change in the trade-off that policymakers face and a change in the decisions they make in terms of when, when to invest in education. Obviously, investment can't be limitless, but we need to see the benefits and the potential returns to investing in education as being long-term. Uh, Birgitta, a, a, a last word from you. What, what would your priority be for the government in terms of helping schools and helping children recover from the last 18 months? Well, I, I would say that it's important to have a holistic picture of the role of schools, not focusing just on tutoring programs, important though they are, but to, to look at the bigger picture of how children learn and how different skills that children have combine to produce educational outcomes. A narrow focus just on academic learning, I think, is, is short-sighted. And just to reiterate what Luke was saying about the investment aspect of spending and education, the same is also true for obesity, say, where we know the long-term healthcare and productivity costs are so high that um, preventing obesity early on or, or lessening obesity among, among children has such high returns later on in terms of, of many dimensions. So I think a multidimensional view on this is, is needed and the longer side beyond political cycles. Well, that's probably a a very good place to end, because I I suppose if there's one thing that's really struck me about this conversation, it really is this point about the wider role and the important wider role of schools and the education system in not just educating our children, but in their mental and physical health as well. And I think we often forget that or take it for granted or spend too much time thinking just about exams, important though they clearly are. We've got to 
clearly a school system which was already struggling after a decade of reduced resources with huge additional pressures on it and one of many priorities the government's going to have to be thinking about as it goes into the upcoming spending review. So thank you so much to Dr. Birgitta Raba and to Dr. Luke Sibieta, who've been great guests today. Thank you for listening to the IFS Zooms In, and we hope you'll catch us again next time.